This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Returning to Eden, a field guide for the spiritual journey. Returning to Eden is a book by Heather Hamilton for people who resonate with aspects of Christianity but struggle with the coherence of its claims. After having a mystical experience that shattered her evangelical beliefs, Heather Hamilton found herself on the journey that every true spiritual seeker ultimately takes. The highest truths that set us free are hidden in places that most people are not looking. Returning to Eden re-examines the Bible stories of childhood and opens them up as symbolic maps into the inner world. Stories like Jonah and the whale, the parting of the Red Sea, Noah's Ark, and the virgin birth are illuminated with penetrating depth and intellectual integrity. Faith is no longer a white-knuckled grip on implausible beliefs, but a relaxation into a deep inner knowing. You can purchase Returning to Eden by Heather Hamilton at Amazon.com or at ReturningToEden.com. My brother-in-law has a joke he likes to tell frequently. What does the fish say when it hits a wall? Damn. <laughs> I like it. It's funny. It's simple. You get it? It brings two words together that sound the same but have quite different meanings, which makes me think of the conversation I had today with my new friend, Heather Hamilton. Because Heather, she still likes the Bible. She still reads it. And the words all sound the same. They're the same stories. But she's come to the realization that the stories have different meanings and or deeper meanings than what she had previously thought. Same words, different meanings. Her book's called Returning to Eden, and I highly recommend it if you're still into reading the Bible, which personally, I kind of hope you are. That's right. This is the Jonathan underscore Foster podcast, where we work through theology, ecclesiology, life. What else? I mean, what do we not work through here? Um, You know, different seasons. We'll talk about different things. Certainly, I've spent a lot of time talking about Rene Girard's mimetic theory. Definitely, I've spent time talking about open and relational theology. So you're going to find a lot of that on this show. Sometimes I monologue, and sometimes I just have conversations like I've been doing a lot this season And I truly enjoyed my conversation today with Heather Hamilton. Hey, while you're listening to this, you can just jump on over to Jonathan Foster online. Obviously, if you're driving, don't do that. But uh, if you're not, you can jump on over and just click the link to sign up uh, for the little newsletter I have about my new book. It's actually not a newsletter. It's It's a link just so you can stay up to date with whatever updates are happening with Indigo, The Color of Grief, which will be out sometime. (laughs) Sometime it will be out and I'm proud of it. And I hope that you'll be able to um, pick it up and, you know, interact with me through that way. I've been getting some really amazing endorsements back. Just this week, I got a blurb from a new friend, Dr. John or Dr. Jack Caputo. Can you imagine that? Dr. Caputo is one of the leading theopoets, philosophical theologians, university professors in the country, maybe in the world, very well respected. He's authored a bunch of books. A lot of them have been very influential upon me and lots of my colleagues and friends. So it was pretty amazing to get that from him. I never imagined that John Caputo would write an endorsement for a book of mine. Just never really even crossed my mind till a few months ago. But then I was like, 
well, I don't know him. He gets lots of requests. Should I send this to him? And I didn't. But then Dr. Catherine Keller encouraged me to do so. And then I think she brought it up to him. So, of course, I emailed him. I dropped Catherine's name, which I try to do as often as I can anyhow. And lo and behold, he wrote something really nice for me. And I'd read it right now, but it feels too self-serving. I'll save that for another time. But that was pretty cool. So I hope you will sign up for those rare periodic updates by clicking on the link on my website so you can find out about what's going on. Will we get picked up by a publisher? Will I ever find an agent who wants to represent me? (laughs) Or will I self-publish? Will we crowdfund? Which is cool if we wind up doing that too. We'll see where it all goes. And I hope that you will join along with me on the ride. All right. Enough about Indigo and me. This episode is really about Heather Hamilton. I hope you'll find her at returningtoeden.com. That's her website. And truthfully, I just really loved this conversation. And I think you will too. Hope you get to share it, like it, review it. And uh, thanks for tuning in today. Peace, everyone. So there's audio, but no video. Um, anyway, so it just is what it is. But I was, it was like, dang it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess it was better than the other way around. Video and no audio. Yeah, that's true. You just, uh, here's Heather pantomiming all of yeah. her information. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It looks like what she's saying is, is so enlightening. <laughs> exactly. We're sure that it is. <laughs> well, all right. Um well, thanks for hanging out with me. We'll just we'll just get into it. And um, yeah, thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. So, uh, hello everyone. This is my friend Heather Hamilton, my new friend, and we've got. I've just learned recently that we have some stuff in common. Uh, we have a uh, share a common publisher, and she's a writer. And she and her partner and family have been involved in church ministry, mega church ministry and other things over the years. Yep. Uh, what else? I mean, she's a human being. (laughs) We got a lot in common. (laughs) Yeah. We both like Brian Zahn. When you invited me on, I was like, I'm going to go listen to an episode. Uh, so I found his and I enjoyed your, all your talks about mountains. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry. We got carried away there, but yeah, no, I've been to Estes park once, um, and did like some horseback riding there and, you know, did the drive up to the top of the Rockies. So I was picked, like, I was picturing the whole story of him driving Eugene Peterson around there. And I was like, I've been there. It was awesome. Yeah. You literally took that same drive and that was, that's a great story. So that's cool. Yeah. It feels like you're on a different planet, like you drove to Mars. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. For sure. Well, speaking of different planets, uh, we have all been on different planets. It feels like with the reformulation of our faith uh, and uh-huh. the things that have <laughs> happened over the years. And so Heather's got this really strong book called Returning to Eden, A Field Guide for the Spiritual Journey. And as I told you earlier, it's it's just it's written really well and it's really good content. And you're clearly have experience as a writer, which is always which is always nice. So thanks for writing that. There's a ton of stuff in there. Holy cow. You just decided yeah. you just decided to go for it. 
<laughs> well, it was funny because I like didn't have aspirations to really be a writer. Um, I mean, I didn't like grow up going like, I hope to write a book one day. It's one of those things where you're like, maybe that'd be cool. And then I realized I had something to write about, obviously. Um, but I didn't have a publisher at the time. Like, uh, just to be, I'm like, I was really like nobody. I'm like, I don't know how this is going to go. I just need, really, I needed my kids to have this book. This sounds a little morbid, but when you go through like these experiences that I can talk about, it wasn't like I was thinking about death all the time in like a morbid kind of way. But when you kind of face your own mortality, it it just be, it, it puts this sense of urgency into you where I just felt like if I'm ever not here, I've got these three little kids that I love more than anything. And I really don't trust anybody else in, in their world to tell them this. So I, I need them to have this handbook or whatever, you know, like when they're older, I wasn't thinking like, I'm going to start a new career as a writer. It was just like, if I am ever not here, all of it's got to be here for them. So I'm throwing it, I'm throwing everything I know into this book and maybe it'll just live on my computer until I die. Um, but then, you know, of course, after it was done, it was like slowly but surely the the sea started to part and there was a way for it. So yeah. anyway, yeah. No, that's, that's really true. Uh, I feel the same way. I think a lot of us feel the same way too. Um, feels like everything I've written when I go to, not that you have to dedicate it necessarily, but when I go uh -huh. to do that, I'm like, oh, basically this was for my kids. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or, my, or my nieces and nephews, what, whatever the next generation or the young people in my church, because there's part of me that's like, screw it. <laughs> I'm tired of so much of this, but then, but then no, then I have really good days where I'm like, oh no, love really means something to me. And uh, we gotta, we gotta have a revolution of it an evolution mm -hmm. of it too, in order for it to carry on. So I, yeah. I totally relate to that. Yeah. Yep. Um, tell us a little bit about, yeah, some of the maybe inciting incidents for you that caused you to start to rethink through your faith. And you can, I know in your introduction, you get uh, pretty personal and I really appreciated that um, introduction to the book that is. So mm -hmm. you can go into detail with that if you want or, or whatever, but what were some of those things that catalyzed, you know, the need you realized you needed, you needed something different? Yeah. Um, well, so I was about 32 when I just, I had, um, this kind of sudden life-changing experience. Um, at the time, my husband was the music director at this really large influential mega church. And we were just all in with that. You know, it was like the, the 30,000 view, like this is our mission in life. You know, that was the overarching umbrella. And then underneath that was like, you know, all these people who are on board with that mission, who were insanely talented, like congregating in this space. Cause you know, the mega church world kind of like they draw really talented people, you know? Um, and so it was like this excellence that was, you know, fueling the mission. And then our whole community was baked into that. And it just felt like, yeah, th this is the trajectory of everything. And, you know, God's blessed us because we've, you know, <laughs> I don't know, followed, uh, you know, 
pursuing his mission in life and, and all of this stuff. Um, so anyways, there was absolutely like nothing. I kind of describe it, um, as like a castle wall around my beliefs. Like I wasn't trying to deconstruct anything whatsoever. Like if something contradictory came into my field, it was just like, no, the bridge doesn't come down for that, you know, because that, would disrupt my worldview. So it was just, it was out, you know? Um, yeah, I had no interest in, in like rethinking anything whatsoever. Why would I? Um, and then when I was 32, I just essentially had, um, some really personal revelations about my life. Um, I don't know. It was like these divine illuminations just dropped into my world. I am going to be a little bit vague about that, but it was, um, essentially just realizing and, um, certain things about my life that I hadn't dealt with some trauma that I hadn't dealt with. And it, it disrupted, um, the narrative of who I was in my, in my own mind. I, it was suddenly like I had just this outside view of myself and understood that, you know, I had really fallen asleep, like to my authentic essence or presence. Um, it's, that's a little bit intangible. Like we can get into that a little bit more in the book. Um, well, but essentially, that, sorry, to go interrupt. Ahead. well, sorry to interrupt. I was just going to say, even that, even the language you're using is, um, it's, well, I started to say slightly, it probably is antithetical to mega church culture. If you uh -huh. were, I can only imagine if you were talking to friends about, uh, and not to disrespect megachurch. Uh, oh, uh, yeah. There's a, lot yeah. Of, there's a lot of good stuff that happens in big churches, too. But just the language of essence and divine illumination, all of that, that doesn't Yeah, it's fit. like, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, you had your divine illumination when you were seven, you know, and you got saved and, and that was it, you know? Um, yeah, so there there was no language for it at all. It was just um, it, an experience of the present moment and also myself at the time, I kind of um, described it as this feeling of like this inner child or something that had been buried that I was asleep to. And all of a sudden it was, it felt as urgent as like hearing a small baby, like crying in the ground and like realizing, Oh my God, like there's a child buried alive in there. Like, and as soon as you realize that, like everything everything is about getting the child out, you know? Um, so that is kind of that picture is how it felt psychologically to me is that I just realized I had buried, um, my inner self, like down with deep, 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 deep down. Um, and then when I realized that it was like, oh my gosh. Um, and it just spurred this identity crisis and nervous breakdown because I kind of realized, that my whole life and the trajectory of it and, you know, the decisions I had made were kind of this programmed personality that weren't me, but I had fully identified with the personality. So there was kind of this um, sort of split that happened. Um, and at the same time, like all this trauma and PTSD stuff is coming up. And so my nervous system was just entirely overwhelmed, like unprecedented territory, you know, where I just, um, kind of really overnight over the course of a few nights, um, which felt like just one long day. Cause I wasn't sleeping at all. Um, it was like, uh, you know, 
mom of three, mega church, evangelical, like got it going on, career woman to like, I am going to be admitted to a psychiatric hospital. Like it was that extreme. And I was so terrified of that outcome because I had just had a baby who was like 10 months old. So I'm nursing the baby and, you know, very suddenly aware of like attachment issues and, and that kind of thing. So I was like, I can't, I can't be separated from my kids, but I know if I ask for help, just the intensity of the situation, like, I think I'm going to end up there. Um, so anyways, I, I didn't ask for help until, um, it just kind of culminated one night with me, like crying out to God and, um, having this experience of, uh, I'm, I'm trying to explain it. Um, it just became obvious to me that whoever I was crying out to, I guess I'll call it my God concept wasn't real. Um, and so this person or object that I had projected a lot of, you know, personality and characteristics onto somewhere in the sky that I had thought if I'm ever in this kind of situation, like, you know, God's going to come rescue me or save me or whatever language you want to use. Like that was not happening and that, that it didn't exist. Like whatever concept I had in my mind wasn't real. And, um, it, it was truly like an experience of hell where I just felt so like untethered out in space. Um, and so, yeah, like that was basically like what was happening. And, um, I knew at that point, um, that I couldn't live like that anymore. Like my nervous system was so blown out, um, that I just realized if I don't get help and I don't even know what that looks like, I just, I'm not going to be here for that long. And it, and I just really understood how when people get to that point where it, it's, it's like the amount of pain that you're experiencing is just so overwhelming. Like if you were in an electric chair or something like that, you know, like at some point you just press mercy to turn it off or whatever. Um, so I, you know, told my husband, Hey, I, I need you to call 911. And this was me essentially like surrendering to like going to a psychiatric hospital. Like I, I thought for sure, this is what's going to happen. Um, if we call and, um, so the paramedics showed up and I, I opened the door. And as soon as I start speaking with the person across from me, um, she starts speaking and I, immediately recognized her as a transgender woman. And this was like very, um, it wasn't what I was expecting in the moment. Again, super evangelical, super conservative area, um, wasn't even on my radar, but there was just something about this person where I was like, wasn't expecting this. And so my first emotion was kind of fear and recognizing I don't know if I trust you because my whole orientation has been, I'm the one with the truth. I'm the one who's supposed to be saving people like you. You know, we had a pretty, I would say that the church, like demographic wise was pretty diverse, but there was still this, you know. Um, uh, still has um, to fit within the box. Yes. Yes. You're, you're welcome here, you know, but like you're, you can't, we, you can't serve in your gifts 
if you, you know, aren't conforming to the system of belief. So there was still like this um, sort of unconscious hierarchy that I came face to face with in that moment. And, um, but you know, what else was I going to do? This is the person here to help me. So I just start word vomiting what's going on with me. And it was like for the first time over the course of that few days, this was the first person who saw me and really, really understood what I was going through. She divulged that she had like been in a similar place. And suddenly it was like, um, I, like time just fell away. I felt like I was in this bubble, like just this really thick, benevolent presence. Um, I later like defined it as a mystical experience where it just, it was like the most sacred moment of my life. And it was with this transgender woman. And, you know, for my 30 some odd years or 25 plus years, whatever of, you know, trying to understand Christ and relate to Christ and figure out where's God and blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden, like everything that I had heard about Christ, I saw it like in front of my face. And so I just, it was like, I saw the truth. The truth shall set you free. Like Christ was in this person on my front porch, um, just this body that I would have not expected. And yeah, it, from that moment, like she directed me to, you know, the help that I needed. Um, I did not end up going to a hospital. I ended up going to see a therapist and doing like several months of um, this trauma-based therapy called EMDR, which was just life-changing for me. Mm -hmm. um, but it was all of a sudden, like my whole axis of my worldview was like uprooted and replanted, like in that moment. And I, it was um, this relating to Christ or divinity, like went from like this vertical relationship of like, I'm here and God's up there somewhere to like, I saw Christ in this person. And at the same time, it, it, what I had been experiencing in myself, this inner awakening of presence, I recognized that as Christ. And so it was like this perfect mirror um, where Christ was looking at me, Christ was looking out at this other person from me. And then pretty soon from there, it was like, I'm like seeing the whole world like saturated with Christ. Like, I think if this is true for me and this other person, this is the reality for everybody. It's just really a, a matter of if you're aware of it or not. So that's, that's really kind of what I came to understood, like, spiritual awakening or rebirth or whatever was nothing had changed. It had always been this way. It was just my awareness of it, like came on the scene, you know, like I felt like I woke up from being asleep. Um, so yeah, I'll kind of leave it there, but that's what happened. And so obviously like I, I needed to like fix my psychological pipes, but in doing that, like the theological explanations that I had been given just didn't make sense to me anymore. Wow, that was really good. I feel like I don't want to say anything because I'll just <laughs> I'll just mess up everything you just said. That was great, man. Um, I'll just make a couple comments. Um, 
first of all, I'm thankful. Thank you for your vulnerability and just saying what you said, because probably like you too, I just, almost everybody I know is going through some major shift in their thinking and in their faith journey. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's entangled. It's psychological, mm -hmm. it's spiritual. I mean, it's all spiritual, but it's psychological and physiological and you know, the body keeps the score, mm -hmm. uh, which is that whole idea of we internalize these things that happen to us, trauma. Mm -hmm. um, on, on I'm convinced on every level. And then our body, you know, remembers all of that. And then it comes mm -hmm. out later. And I have lots of friends who, yeah, have been through similar kinds of things. And I think it's just super helpful and healthy for them to hear someone like you express it the way that you have. So I just wanted to say thanks for that. And then <laughs> also just how beautiful it is that a transgendered human being is someone who communicates love to you. And I've often thought, let's see, I don't know if I have said this very well yet, but something about when Jesus, um, yeah, it's like the people, I, I guess I don't need to introduce the biblical part of it yet, but it's like the people who have been scapegoated and removed and marginalized. It's almost like our hope, it's the hope of the world almost lies in their hands the, mm -hmm. way, they, the way they receive it. And so it's too much to put that on the transgendered community or LGBTQ or whoever's been marginalized. But on the other hand, that seems to be the way that love works. And um, it's so beautiful that uh, that, that happened with you. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm kind of, I'm kind of at a loss for words. So that's, that's just a really beautiful story. Uh, the other thing I'll say is um, you mentioned the word untethered and my partner and I've used that word a lot, mm -hmm. especially when we started to gain new language and we were obviously being moved out of evangelical world um it just felt yeah it felt untethered it felt like the your sense of gravity which had always been around the meaning making system of all the things you said god and doing it the right way and church and the blessing that's all wrapped up in the church world all of a sudden the gravitational like you get away from that and gravity changes and you start going somewhere else and untethered is a is a great word yeah well i like um I like that you highlighted that, um, that feeling of being untethered. Later, I came to kind of put like new metaphorical language around it where it felt like um, the umbilical cord like had been cut out of a womb. Like this whole theme of rebirth started to come. Where, like I, I understood, no, I think this is what I think this is what Jesus was talking about. Like what I was experiencing, I was like, no, this, this actually feels like a rebirth. It, it feels like I've been, you know, cut off from my old mother and propelled into this new thing, which was terrifying, but also exhilarating because all of a sudden, like all your senses are online now and you can understand like this, you know, in, in Luke, where Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is within you and it's not going to be out there or come later or whatever. It's like here and now, and you understand like, oh my gosh, like when I'm fully present, 
there is this like quality or aliveness to it where the boundaries of like heaven and earth are suddenly kind of blurred. Like it becomes this feeling of oneness where it's really like about your perception. But so I did feel like the umbilical cord had been cut. Like there's no going back in the womb, you know, like there's no going back to how I used to think, but then kind of experiencing or making sense of that you know, the God concept that died where it felt like I was an object and God was this separate object. Like, you know, when I died, I was going to give God a big hug or something like that. Like that's how I related to God. And then suddenly it felt like everything in my environment and in me was like animated with that quality of love, you know, that I pictured, um, maybe happening later, like after I died, when I quote unquote met God, it was all of a sudden, like everything feels like it's emanating this quality. And so it almost felt like I was like birthed out of one womb of consciousness into this next womb of consciousness. And it was like, the reason why that God concept died is because I was always in this womb of God. Like it was like, I was a child in utero searching for its mother, you know, and then realizing like, oh, I'm in it. I'm a part of it, you know? And so when I started to kind of, to keep using this word, like retether myself with this new understanding, it was like, oh, like the umbilical cord has always been like connected to like, God is what's like feeding me and animating me. And it's, yeah, it was like being in, in the womb of God, I guess. I don't know if that's making sense, but. Yeah. So I often think of Peter Kreeft, uh, his saying is something, um, and I've adapted it a little bit over the years, but as the baby's inside the womb and the womb is inside the mama, so the mama's inside the earth and the earth is inside heaven and heaven's inside God. Yeah. Uh, it's this whole, and John Wesley talks about, I was really surprised to find this out a few years ago. My background is Wesleyan, and and I had no idea that Wesley was open to this general idea. It's basically pan-entheism, but um, Mm -hmm. of God being the soul of the universe or the soul of the universe being God. And so, yeah, you were, you let go of one thing, but you were birthed into something else. It's all still God. Where are you going to go to get away from that? Yeah. That's a common denominator in a lot of our stories is this idea that no, God's not out there. Someone that you go when you die and give a hug who, um, although I, by faith, I imagine there'll be a lot of hugs after we die. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's like maybe Jesus, like I could imagine that, you know what I mean? Yeah, right. Um, but yeah, no, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, it's not separate. It's, yeah. it's, it's withness, you know, mm-hmm. so, so the omni withness has been one of the things that just has really, really helped me a lot. And I think I, as I hear stories, it seems to, that seems to be true of a lot of people. Yeah. And it's, um, I think it's when, when you like come to that understanding, I, you know, I sort of, I write about this in the book, but you know, when Paul talks about, I thought like a child and, you know, when I thought that way, I actually, I'm like, he was like in his thirties leading an army when he's talking about this, you know, I had kind of always read that as like, yeah, you know, when I was eight, I thought like an eight year old and realizing, no, he's like a grown man. 
Mm-hmm. Who's saying up until I had this road to Damascus moment, I had this, the psychology of a child or this childish way of looking out at the world. And, and now that's fallen away. And for me, it's, it's like this twofold thing where you understand like, Oh, I, I understand what it means now to have like the power of God in me, I guess is it's like, God is experiencing the world somehow through me in that, like what I see or pay attention to or really care about, like when I feel like my eyes are purified or, or whatnot, it's like, that is God moving, you know, like if God's going to move, I have to do it. Like it's, it's God through me. And at the same time, it was like this big letdown of like, God, like nobody's coming to fix this, you know, if anyone's going to help me, I'm going to have to do it. If anyone's going to help, you know, the people in my world and my vicinity, I'm going to have to do it. And then, you know, as, as you start attempting to like actually live that out, understanding, oh, sometimes like the people that I'm trying to help or that I see suffering, like aren't ready to, to accept help. You know what I mean? Like everyone's on their own journey too. And so kind of having reverence, like for where people are and understanding, like I can do what I, I can. And there's some things that I can't, you know, and, and letting it play out in its own time. So yeah, is it's like exciting. And then also just this really disappointing thing, like, dang it there's not going to be this magical fix. You know, there's a trajectory that I have faith in and that gives me hope. Um, But yeah, sort of this, the Santa Claus notion of like something magical going to swoop in and fix it wasn't happening. So I felt like it required a lot more of my life, you know? Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry. My, my brain is spinning. I, I, yeah, I resonate with all that. Um, my theology has shifted such that I think that I totally agree. God is not the magic fix, but is that thing in you longing for, you know, inviting you into all of this and inviting us into all this next change. But but depending on your theological take, either will not do it for you or literally cannot. I'm of the mm-hmm. latter in the sense that I think God is love. And if God is love, love doesn't control Mm -hmm. because the moment love controls to me, it's not love. It's something else. So if that's true, then, then God actually can't do it for you, but, Mm -hmm. but it's still that thing inside of you who never leaves and is always working. And it's really beautiful, but also daunting and overwhelming because, um, then there are no real guarantees. Yeah. Yeah. I was just um, talking about, well, uh, yeah, at the time we're recording this, I'm not sure it's going to come out, but yeah, like the wildfires in Maui just Mm -hmm. um, happened a few weeks ago, you know, like reading some of the heartbreaking stories about like families who a a lot of them, you know, like no doubt, like believed in God and were, were still like burned alive in their cars, you know? And so anyways, I was talking to, you know, my husband about this a little bit and remembering back to reading this book called um, Man's Search for Meaning 
Mm-hmm. Um, have you read that? Yeah, Victor Frankel. Yeah. Um, and really how he like talked about, you know, in some of these impossible situations, him observing like these spiritual giants where he says, you know, like it, it's man who like created the gas chambers and it's also man who walked into them like with the Lord's prayer on their lips. Yeah. And, and like, that's how sobering it is, you know, like that you realize like that there's, there are possibilities in life where you end up in some situation where you're like utterly trapped. Like this is, this is the end of the road here. And like, I, I, you know, I kind of realized like, I want to be the kind of person that, that faces a situation with that kind of like courage and peace and like dignity within myself, you know? And that's like, it's an inside job for every person. Like nobody can, can do that for you. It's, you know, it's coming to terms with like, you you know, dealing with your own mind and heart and nervous system throughout Mm -hmm. your life. So that, you know, when those, that like rubber meets the road situations happen, it's like, you know, how am I going to experience that? Yeah. I'm kind of on a trail, but I think it's getting to what you're saying. It's just like the lack of guarantees and like, yeah. Yeah. And understanding the full scope of reality in that way, you know? Yeah. It's much, it's much bigger than, than I ever imagined. Um, And also I should say too, for people listening who maybe are just got freaked out, not that people listening haven't probably heard me say that before, but so the way I look at it is I, there are no guarantees except the guarantee of love. Yeah. But because love doesn't control, all of a sudden you're back into situations where you just don't know how it's going to go. So yep. I totally agree. My, um, I'll just say one more thing on this subject because we haven't even got to your book yet. Sorry. Um, Eddie Hellisom, I don't know if you're familiar with her. I call her Saint yeah. Eddie. Mm-hmm. Uh, she has that classic line that, you know, she was, of course, um, I can't remember which camp it was, if it was Auschwitz or which I can't, but she's this young 30-year-old person who winds up dying in concentration camps. And the only reason we know of her writing is because um, she has this journal that she slips through the slats of a rail car as she's being carted off to the ovens. And um, But somewhere in there, she says, I realize now, God, that you can't help us. So mm-hmm. we must, we must help you. Mm-hmm. That, that messes me up uh, every time I think of that. And I, and I try to think of that a lot. And when I just heard you use the word dignity, I think mm-hmm. of St. Saint, Saint Eddie, like she, she had dignity and, um, and I, I want to live like that, that both with the realization that God can't fix it, but he's still very much with us. And it's a really beautiful thing to enter into the story of trying to help God, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what a a great way to spend your life. Yeah. And isn't it amazing that, you know, and I don't think anyone's to blame like this. I, I, to blame about this. I I honestly feel like a lot of this stuff was right in front of my face and I just couldn't see it. And that's like the spiritual and psychological component of this is like, you know, I, the two most prominent pictures for me of God in the Bible, you know, most of us would agree. Okay. God is in Jesus, you know, like, yes, we, we agree with that. And, and the two most prominent pictures I have are of this helpless little baby 
and this man hanging on a cross being murdered, you know, it's like, it's the two most vulnerable Mm -hmm. pictures that you could paint, like just utter helplessness. And we're saying that is the clearest picture of God that we have, you know? Yeah. And and it was right in front of my face the whole time. Like, never mind the teaching and the theologies and, you know, whatever that kind of got, I'm like, it was right there. <laughs> so as soon as I, you know, understood really my own vulnerability and in that vulnerability, like the power and the courage that it generated in me, which I understood, oh, this is what power is, you know, when you understand like how vulnerable you are. And it's like, Oh, I better do it right now. You know, like, I don't know how much time I have, like better write this book, you know, (laughs) Um, that feels powerful. And you under, you feel your own incarnation, you know, but it was like, suddenly, Oh, no one was like, okay. No one was explaining it to me like this. I will say that, but no one was like hiding it, you know, like the pictures right there, the stories are right there for myself. It's just, you understand like how your programming creates your reality and then you just can't see certain things. Right. And, and when you don't have the language for it, you just, you automatically drift back into the older saying. So how important it is all, all the more reason that it's so important for people like you to write stuff like you have written because you are literally giving new language to folks and that's super cool. So tell me about, um, well, I mean, there's so many things to talk about in your book, but, um, you know, I definitely was struck with your intelligence regarding mythic stories. And mm-hmm. um, how did you come to some of those conclusions regarding, oh, I've been, you know, between myth and truth and how have you, how did you play with that and how did that help you? Yeah. So, oh, it's funny. Okay. I don't know if pe- people are going to see this video, but you have a whale on your, on your hat. How yes. like, oh yeah, yeah well, synchronicity. Yeah, I wonder if that'll cause you to talk about anything. Well, I was going to talk about Jonah and the whale, and then I saw a whale looking at me. Um, yeah, so that that experience that I described in hell, yeah, I had I had a pretty quick illumination after that, where I knew that that was what the Jonah and the whale story was about. Um, like I would, I just had this thought, like this is where Jonah was. I know that this is what it's talking about. So kind of just in a flash of insight, I sort of realized that's, he wasn't in the ocean for three days, like physically in a whale, you know, like that wasn't it, but I know what he's talking about. I know where he was. It was this, you know, state of consciousness that I had been in. Um, And so when I went back and, you know, looked at that story and read it in the King James version, it actually says like, out of the belly of hell, I cried. It was like, yeah, that, that's where he was. And so um, I, I kind of understood just from my own experience, like hell to be this descent into this certain psychological realm um, that for me, it was necessary, like for my own quote unquote salvation or awakening or whatever was this passage through hell Um, I saw that in Jonah, you know, of him, like prior to him being swallowed by the whale, it was essentially like his personality structure, like 
resisting this pull downward and the chaos that it created. I could see that in my own life. Um, you know, I, I wasn't tracking this, but like just the anxiety that I had experienced, like the, when I looked back on my life, like there were these rumblings that were building towards this moment that had a thread in them. Um, that all made sense, but I couldn't see it at the time. You know, it was like, I'm not consciously trying to avoid anything. I'm trying to like tamp down on this anxiety, you know? Um, so then when Jonah's swallowed, it's like this metaphorical picture of, you know, in mythology, universally in mythology, like water would represent the unconscious mind, the whale or the beast, you know, that swallows him is like the, the power of the personality, like pulling you down into your unconscious. And there, like the old personality is broken down, metabolized, you know, regenerated. It's everything that happens in a belly. So I, I understood it as myth, um, as like not something that wasn't true, not just like a fairy tale that somebody made up, but it was a metaphorical picture of this psychological process that has to happen for like the vitality of someone's life to be able to like incorporate that into your personality, to bring like the inner soul, the essence of the soul, like your life force that's buried deep down to bring it into your actual life. So like, I guess the theological term is like for the word to be made flesh for that vitality of your soul to like come into the material world. So that was essentially like the process that was happening with Jonah in that belly. I understood it to be a psychological process. And then he's like spit out into the ordinary world where he's like integrating some of this wisdom and this courage and this power, you know, he still has a little ways to go. I don't think that this is like a one and done thing. Like there's been lots of little deaths and rebirths, but that was certainly like my belly of the whale moment. Um, So anyway, I started to just see this pattern of psychological development and transformation in all of these Bible stories that up until that point, I I mean, they're nonsensical, you know what I mean? Like literally speaking, it's just, it's a crazy story that you kind of will yourself to believe because you believe in God, you know? Um, And so the cognitive dissonance of the literalism fell away, but the Bible stories, mythologically speaking, became like the best language I had to describe this process. Yeah. So that was my attempt with the book was to present myth in a way where it's like, it's not, it's not, um, you know, these aren't stories that you either have to like will yourself into believing something insane or it's a myth, meaning it's just a lie. Someone made it up to control you and throw it all out. It's like, no, the symbols and the patterns, these myth is like a container holding this transformative energy and kind of pointing you towards um, like the energies that are running through the universe that are at play, kind of controlling things 
all the time. You're just not aware of it. So like myth helps you to unlock like those potentials in yourself and to also understand like what's going on around you. You know, it, it actually, it's sometimes annoying. Like I had to turn the volume down on it sometimes, but for when I interact with people, sometimes that you can just tell, you know, aren't very conscious or haven't done any of this kind of work. It's like, I can, I can read you like a book. Like I just, I understand like your type structure. I understand what your motivations are. Like I understand the myth that's kind of living you that you're not aware of. And so that becomes very like helpful information to navigate your life with. Um, Yeah. But also like, yeah, I'm I'm kind of just rambling now, but I, I kind of think that if we can sort of identify with a myth or like find ourselves in these stories, then it can begin to like awaken us to our life's potentials. I totally agree. And I don't think you're rambling at all. And I hope people are paying, <laughs> hope people are paying attention because it's good stuff. Um, yeah. Sometimes for me, it helps to use the word mythic versus myth because uh-huh. myth in our, you know, the colloquial way in which we use it too often goes to a false thing. And so it's important for people to recognize that when you're talking about myth here or mythic, it's not so much, it's not in the context of wrong or right, true or false. It's this mythic way of interpreting all of life. And and there's a lot of different, there's a lot of different kind of mythic ways we approach things. Capitalism, politics, you know, the Bible. So I think it's really wise and it was healthy and good for you um, to, to lo- to notice that. And, and what your book does well is then you're repackaging it for now younger people to be able to come along. And so anyone who's interested in the Bible should pick up returning to Eden because, uh, that's, that's what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it doesn't devalue anything in the Bible. Actually, it, it increases it. Yeah. Uh, it just caused you to read it differently, which makes me think, um, have you had people, I know I certainly have, who have assumed that you're devaluing the Bible or that you have, uh, you don't have as much respect for the Bible because of your reading it this way now? Um, that's a good question. I actually think for better or worse, like I'm a pretty agreeable person. Like I try to get along with, with most people. Um, So it's not really a part of my personality to like, try to like throw lightning rods about stuff. Mm -hmm. When I I do share, and hopefully this is obvious about the book, I I do think that even if someone doesn't agree with me, they're probably going to believe that what I'm saying is very sincere. Like I'm Mm -hmm. I'm trying to do something artful with it. Yeah. um, Where... I'm trying to like engage people with the language that they speak and from the point of reference that they're already at and then kind of like lead them along the same path that we both already walked, but then like point out something new. Mm-hmm. So I think if I, I think, I don't know, you, <laughs> I don't know, maybe ask people in my community <laughs> what they think. I, I think I've either noticed that, um, yeah, maybe maybe people think I've just gone astray in some way. I I do I can probably say that 
I might get the benefit of the doubt that they at least think that I'm sincere about it and like thoughtful about it, um, that I'm not just trying to be like rebellious or hedonistic or anything like that. Um, more so, I feel like it has been um, maybe some people that I like would have hoped would engage just went silent. Yeah. And so I don't want to like project onto them, but I would interpret like the silence or the disinterest as like, you know, we don't want to go there or whatever or engage. Sure. Um, so, yeah, I don't I think I'm pretty good about like not drawing out attacks, explicit attacks from people, but it's more like, oh, we'll just slowly back away, you know? <laughs> well, uh, no, you're probably right. Uh, you, you are very genuine and sincere. And um, so maybe those of us who aren't as much and yeah, the projecting part is probably really important. Um, yeah. But uh, now what I'm doing is uh, I'm, resisting the urge to psychoanalyze my own, uh, all of my issues I've had with people have come to me about the Bible. So well, that's for a whole nother <laughs> podcast. Let's forget about that. Uh, I guess I have a couple more questions to ask. And I just noticed I am wearing a shirt with a bear on it. So we got oh. whales and bears. So if you can work a bear into your next response, it will be okay. very all right. impressive. All right. Not, I'm going to think about it. I, yeah. I can only think of one bear story in the Bible. And that's that weird story about the is it Elijah? Who is it? Someone and the kids are making fun of him. And then a, so he, he causes a bear to go and eat some of them or something. It's a <laughs> weird story. Very I'm going to have to go back and read that one. I yeah. feel like that that was not in Sunday school, but now I'm really curious hope, about it. I hope it wasn't in Sunday school, but yeah. Yeah, no, it's in there somewhere. Um, tell me about your distinction between inevitable sin an original sin, because I thought that was super helpful. Right. So, yeah, um, again, it's it, it began with my own personal experience where, you know, going back to that metaphor about the buried child, like deep within. When I experienced that life kind of call out to me or start to germinate or whatever, I use this metaphor about a seed, how, you know, a seed grows on a tree and the first thing that grows is like the embryo, which is the, you know, germinating potential of that seed. And then there has to be a hard shell that forms around it to like protect it. And then once that shell is formed, then the seed falls off the tree and you know that it's the hard shell that protects it through all the elements of nature and its journey in life until it finds like an adequate environment to like bury itself in the ground and die. Like the environment has to be right. The timing has to be right. And if those things don't line up, then, you know, it never, it never becomes a tree. It just, you know, dissolves, gets washed out, dissolves into the dirt or whatever. So I, I saw that pattern in my own spiritual and psychological life. Like it was like, oh, there was this embryo or inner child or like, or Christ in me, like asleep. Um, so I saw the story of Adam, you know, like falling asleep. And then, you know, Jesus represents like this awakened Adam, um, like the Adam who wakes up. And so I, I understood this pattern that was like reflected in nature 
in Catholic theology, it's called like the Paschal mystery. Like you see this pattern playing out where something grows and it, it has to be protected. And as it goes on its journey, eventually like it, it like dies and becomes something new. You see it with like a caterpillar and a butterfly, you know, like stage one is the caterpillar. And from a butterfly's perspective, it's like, what a limited life, you know, like you just crawling around on the ground down there, like you don't know what you're missing kind of thing. Um, but in order for the caterpillar to like experience the life of a butterfly, it has to, you know, go into its little cocoon. This is like the rebirthing experience and literally like melt. So this is hell, you know, like we're, we're melting, but it's a transformative experience where, you know, the essence of that um, insect is the same. It's the same essence, you know, that's carrying it through. It's just, we see it in a whole different form. So it it's rebirthed out of its cocoon. Now it's a butterfly and goes away. So, uh, so I understood that um, for me, sin was, was falling asleep to this essence in myself. It was fully identifying with the form, you know, like I am a caterpillar. That's who I am. And, you know, psychologically that would be like our body or our roles or, you know, the things that we attach to ourselves, you know, it's like, I'm a mom, I'm a wife, I'm a Christian, I'm a, you know, these labels that form this construct of who I am in my mind. And so when I entered into like the cocoon or helly, hell or the belly, I was going to say helly, we could call it that. <laughs> Making up new language here. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so I went to helly. Um, <laughs> you know, if you're fully identified with that previous form, like hell is going, it is going to feel awful to let go of that form because you know, from a caterpillar's point of view, it's like, I'm going to go in here and my body's going to melt and what's going to happen. You know what I mean? Like no one's telling you what's, what's happening next. And so if you're lacking like a uh, mythic knowledge of the pattern of what's going to happen here, um, it's, there's a lot of like resistance to the experience, you know, and that's when people can like fall into psychosis or severe mental illness. It's like, this is a little bit of a tangent, which you don't have to get too far into, but I think Carl Jung said, you know, like the mystic and the mentally ill are essentially swimming in the same water. It's this influx of this unconscious life force that, you know, if your nervous system can't handle it, then it can just continue to pull you under as opposed to like learning how to like relax and breathe underwater and, you know, swim in it essentially. So, you know, it can feel like heaven or it can feel like hell, you know, depending on your perspective and your capacity to like hold this influx of energy. Anyway, to get back to your question, I understood sin as being like this state of being asleep and that all of us have to form the shell, you know, like to go back to the, the metaphor of the tree. It's like, if a shell doesn't form around the embryo, like, it's, it can't go on its journey. So it's this necessary, um, you know, this necessary shell that forms around us that puts us to sleep. We see Adam going to sleep, you know, Julian of Norwich says, um, you know, it's necessary that there should be sin first the fall and then the recovery from the fall. And so I think, you know, 
when I woke up, I understood like, oh, sin is being asleep to this presence in myself, you know, this life force in myself, um, my, my soul, I guess you could call it, you know, um, I had like fallen asleep. And so I was like a lost soul. It just, you know, the seed was like just batted around by the wind, you know, <laughs> whatever happened in life, like I just reacted to it and that was it. So I understood it as an inevitable process of human development. Like you can't just come out of the, you can't just come out as an infant and be enlightened to all of this. You know, there's a necessary psychological development for every human. We all sort of have to go on the same journey and, you know, wake up to the same pattern. And so once I realized that it was just like this perfect antidote to guilt and shame. Like I just felt this relief, like, oh, I didn't know, you know, all the, all the stuff I had done, there was of course like consequences and amends that needed to be made and things that I needed to clean up and fix. But that like searing feeling of guilt and shame, I knew I couldn't have done any better at the time. Like I just didn't know. And in a lot of ways that it felt like I had hurt people or I'll specifically like use my kids, like ways that I had parented my kids where I was like, oh my gosh, that was so cringe, like to think about it, you know? And I know that I hurt them in some way, you know what I mean? And I know that they feel like I don't understand them or they can't talk to me about these things. And some, like some of my parenting techniques that just felt like humiliating I understood that I really couldn't have done anything else at the time with, with what I had to work with. And so it was like, all right, we got to clean this up. Like we're making some changes. We're making some apologies, you know, like all, all those things, which was great, but also without the baggage of, of the guilt and shame and just understanding like, Oh, I was asleep, you know, that was it. So th there's like, some theological explanation in the book about that, you know, where original sin was kind of formulated by St. Augustine, which was hundreds of years after Jesus. So it's not even that doctrine isn't found in the Bible, you know, it's an interpretation of the stories that got packaged into church doctrine. So anyway, it was, it was kind of nice that I could use my own my own experience, like my own psychological and spiritual work that I could speak with authority on this because I had lived it, you know, it was like, I know that this is what happened. Yeah. Um, so I kind of try to present it as like something that's inevitable and not just like a, you know, sin, not just being, we're breaking the rules, whatever the arbitrary rules happen to be but it's more of a missing the mark, you know, it's identifying with the form in the material world, as opposed to like your soul that is animating the form. And then when the forms change, you know, it's, it's that presence that's animating stays consistent. Yeah, that's really helpful. That's good. You talk about uh, being awakened a lot and having been asleep and, so that's our connection to the bear. It's something about hibernation. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> I, I don't I don't know. I'm I'm only half kidding. Who knows? 
I totally uh, forgot about the bear. I'm going to be no, thinking yeah. about that after we get off of here and I'm probably yeah. going to email you. Yeah. That sounds great. In about two weeks, you'll wake up one morning and be like, oh yeah, a bear. A bear. Um, speaking of the bear, I don't know if you heard our dog growling there, but we're in a little cabin in Colorado right now. And there oh, are, nice. There are critters around. So uh, sorry if that was. No, I didn't hear intriguing. it at all. Nope. Um, yeah, I have to ask about, because I have lots of young friends with kids. How old are your kids right now? Right now, they are 10 and a half, eight and a half, and five. Perfect. This is perfect. <laughs> yeah. What's it like raising these kids now? What What kinds of changes have you made? And I know you don't get into this specifically in the book, um, but what kinds of changes did you make and are making? Um, and what are you enjoying about the, that process? And what's challenging about that process? Being a person mm. of faith, yeah. but reformulating it in the midst of having little people grow up with you. That is a great question. Oh man, I'm gonna I'm gonna stick my neck out there with uh with something kind of risky. Okay. Go for it. So I, I guess my my blanket answer was understanding the ways in which I um understanding my own narcissism. And I and I feel like that's a really like hot term right now, you know, like we really like to scapegoat the narcissist. And sometimes there are people in life where you're like, that guy's a malignant narcissist, you know, like he sucks out of, all the air out of the room, no empathy, all that. But my personal feeling is that each of, each of our type structures, like each of our egos, we all have them. And um, there, there is like a narcissism to, to all of them. It's a way like that we're trying to navigate our own best interest and you know, even for some of us, like the idea of having no ego and just constantly erasing yourself is, is like a narcissistic response, you know, because you have, you know, you have the life of Christ in you that has convictions and is compelled, has passions. And it's like, if you don't bring that into the world, like then essentially, you know, you're kind of using like this narcissistic strategy for self-protection and like denying the world your gifts. So anyways, all that to say, like not to call out everybody, but it's, it's really like this exercise of like taking the plank out of your own eye and realizing like all of our personalities um, have narcissistic tendencies to them. We're trying to get narcissistic supply to like stabilize the personality. And then the challenges is like, you know, putting yourself through like some conscious humiliation, like, you know, bringing shining light on those parts of your personalities and being able to kind of like hold the discomfort of that, you know, it's not about like getting rid of your personality or whatever, but just kind of bringing consciousness to like the, the parts that are, you know, inadvertently harmful to yourself or other people. So, um, first of all, it was like, I need to constantly be doing that as a parent so that I'm not using my kids as narcissistic supply, meaning like these independent autonomous people like don't exist to like make me look good or feel good about myself or make me feel loved. Like, of course, when we're in a healthy relationship, I do feel like love from my children, but it's not like sometimes I don't, you know, <laughs> like sometimes my five-year-old is like, 
I hate you and I'm never going to love you again if you don't do this. And it's like, I don't, I try not to take that personally anymore so that I can actually respond to like what her needs are without making it all about me. Um, so it's, it's my own work. It's also understanding that like, I can't, that each person, each human being, including our kids is going to to fall asleep. There's going to be this pattern where they lose themselves and create a bunch of suffering for themselves and have to go on their journey, like to wake up. And so um, for me, it was kind of trying to study like the defense mechanisms and the coping mechanisms of each of my kids. Um, And they're all very different. So for instance, where I I dealt with a lot of grief when I first kind of woke up, um, my oldest was five at the time. When you first came out of hibernation. When I first came out of hibernation. (laughs) (laughs) It was like a raging bear. Um, Yeah, I feel like our oldest is is like compliant, wants to be good, has this perfectionism about her. And I had been really hard on her because I wanted her to make me look like a good parent. You know, it was like in the church, it was like, you know, train your kids to obey and, you know, we're Christians. So we act this certain way. And like our oldest Nora, like really nailed it. You know, I was like, I'm an awesome parent because she is nailing it, you know, and I get all this positive affirmation about my parenting with her when really like, she's just a wonderful, gentle, like peaceful human being. It was a lot less about me. But so for her, I realized like she's hard enough on herself. Probably some of that is because of me. Some of it I think is just innate to her personality, but I realized I really I have to be very careful, like being critical or giving her feedback or whatever, because it really like hurts her heart. Um, So there was kind of a recalibration in that relationship. My, my son, um, who's now eight, he struggles a little bit with, um, with like, anxiety, trying new things that he's not certain about. And even things that he wants to try, you know, will kind of let like fear or his anxiety kind of hold him back and feel very overwhelmed by it, like with the panic. So I remember with him, like, um, being really resistant to, to riding his bike. And so this is where I'm gonna be kind of vulnerable because I'm like, you know, gentle parenting. Yay. But I was like, this kid, is never going to ride a bike. Like he is not, he's so scared, you know? And so I, I just kind of had this thought of like, you know, I think that his part of his challenge in life is going to be learning how to like move forward confidently with his fear and panic and anxiety and learning how to move through it. So I was like, I got to take the mom hat off where I'm like, nurturing all these tears. Cause it was like, every time there would be tears, like the more I kind of gentle parented it, mm. the more out of control it would get. And so it was like, he needs a coach right now. Someone who's going to be like, I know that you can do this. You're going to do this. And so it was like a hundred times down this hill, you know, he's falling over everywhere. And he, when he finally got it, it was like, mom, 
you're the best. Like, thank you so much that I can ride my bike now. And, and so I just understood that like that strategy for my son would have been so detrimental for my daughter if I, the, my oldest. Um, and so it was really like just understanding each kid as like their own autonomous person with their own type structure. For me, like the Enneagram has helped, you know, understand my son is a six. And so it was like, he needs like some of this really strong guidance and confidence and someone to just say like, you know, no, you're not going to panic yourself out of the situation. You can do it. Like we call it going into beast mode now, or he kind of like channels this anxiety into what he wants to do. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I don't know, again, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but it was really understanding that I had like birthed a stranger and that it was my job to really study this person to, to study like their type and how they were like adapting and coping with their environment. And then, um, yeah, again, like the Enneagram has been a tool for me to understand like, oh, if someone has this type structure, you know, the people that I talk to that are like sixes or whatever say that this is something that they really needed in, you know, in childhood. So another component of that has been like getting him on sports teams where he has coaches that will do this for him. And I've just noticed like his confidence kind of come online in all sorts of areas because he has like this sort of protective guiding coach figure saying like, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. Mm-hmm. Whereas my daughter, Nora, who's like a nine, a, a peacemaker and also kind of perfectionistic and very creative. It's like, if someone's drilling her like that, that, oh, it's just going to spiral like so fast in a bad direction. That's, that's great. Super helpful. You sound like an awesome mom. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. You know, yeah. We had three kids. We're empty nesters now. And it's, uh, mm-hmm. it is remarkable how much life changes. And I've thought several times over the last couple of years that I knew it was coming, mm-hmm. but I just, you just have no anticipation of how dramatic it's going to be. But I, I've yeah. thought a lot about how we need to talk more about that in our culture because it's a huge shift. Yeah. But anyhow, that's for another episode. Thank you so much for that. How about we close? I know we're running out of time. I want to ask you about who you've read and how they helped you. Mm -hmm. By By the way, you already know this, but for anyone listening, if you want to be a writer, you pretty much have to be a reader. Yeah, Uh, that's the way it works. Um, But you obviously cite Joseph Campbell a lot in the book. Yeah. And um, you already mentioned Brian's on. And you just mentioned uh, Carl Jung. By the way, do you know Ilya DeLeo? Are you familiar with her? Uh-huh. Yeah. She's, she's got a book coming out where she brings Carl Jung and Teilhard de Chardin together. Okay. That'll that's, be wonderful. I mean, pretty much everything Ilya does is golden anyhow. So that's going to be yeah. awesome. Yeah. Anyhow, yeah. Who, who, did, who did you read and, and how did they help you? Yeah. Um, I would say that my biggest influence is probably um, Richard Rohr was a big influence for me. I feel like that he, um, my, my kind of awakening experience happened about, I'm going to say like six months before the universal Christ came out. And so, um, 
it was funny because that was my first introduction to Roar was like, you know, I think he describes that book as like, you know, the, I don't know what he says. It was like the climax of his work, you know, like this is, this is my gem. But, but that was my first introduction to him. So I, I was like, boom, this is it. Like yeah. <laughs> I carried that book around in my purse and like handed it out, you know, when I would, when the opportunity would come up, like my Amazon cart is like, you bought this book 20 times, you know, <laughs> tells you how many times you bought it. Yeah. Um, but so really like, I just felt like that that book gave me language, like Christian language for what I had experienced, um, which was, which was just such a gift to me to be able to continue using my mother tongue. That's how I describe Christianity now is my mother tongue. Like I understand that people are speaking different languages. Um, And, you know, even though I was working through different religious trauma and stuff, I did understand it as like a language, you know, which is like a technology that I was using to just try to communicate something deeper. So, um, Richard Rohr was a big influence. And then, yeah, pretty soon after him came Joseph Campbell, which um, gave me the language of myth and opened opened up um, me to understand like different languages, like a lot of, and, and I talk about some of this in the book, but like I started to understand my own myths and metaphors, like the Christian ones, by understanding different languages. So, you know, the way that Joseph Campbell, for instance, would explain the virgin birth using like the Hindu chakra system, like he's using a totally different language and, you know, system and religion to under, to explain like these concepts that I would then see parallels with in Christianity. So it was like learning new languages to understand my own language. Um, so he really just opened that whole world to me. And then, yeah, Carl Jung um, was just like the psychological component where I under he helped me understand how to integrate the contents of my unconscious that I was experiencing, um, how to how to integrate them into my life. So even in in terms of like, you know, during this time, I would have like these really vivid dreams, you know, where when you have something that's really vivid and crisp like that and meaningful, like elicits a lot of emotion, you wake up, you're like, what was that about? You know, or maybe there was a person in it and you're like, you know, whoa, what what does that mean about this person in my life? And so kind of understanding that like, oh, everything in my dreams is essentially like my unconscious the unconscious trying to like communicate something about myself. So anyway, Carl Jung kind of gave me the language for that. And then I understood like that those three people were, were essentially describing the same process, but just in their different fields. And so like it, I I think that it's, my book is like sort of a synthesis of all of that is, you know, like the spirituality and psychology and, mythology, like all kind of getting at the same thing. I think your book is that too. And that's part of the reason why it's uh, so compelling. There's a lot of layers to it. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for hanging out with me. I'm going to close. You mentioned Carl Jung. So I'm going to close with a little dream I had not Mm. long ago. Mm -hmm. Um, And actually, 
I didn't have the dream. My niece had the dream. Okay. But it's my current favorite dream. This was about maybe, maybe a year ago. She texted me. She said, I had a dream about you last night. And I said, oh yeah. And she said, yeah. She said, I got up to check on uh, the baby. And when I was in the room, I looked out across the street and you were sitting in a lawn chair across the street in the lawn, looking up at the moon. And so we both laughed and I'm like, well, that sounds like something I would do. And mm-hmm. she said, she said, it gets better in my dream. After I put the baby back down, I went down in the garage, got my own lawn chair, came out and sat with you. And we both stared at the moon together. Mm. So I love that. First of all, because my niece is awesome. And um, so the, I think that's a really sweet picture to be able to just be contemplating life, staring at the moon with loved ones. And yeah. also, I want to say, I feel like we've done a little bit of that today with you. We've, yeah. you, we've kind of heard you uh, staring at the moon, so to speak, which is just symbolic for trying to figure out all these big, huge, important things that are going on in life. And it's really been fun to pull out the lawn chair and sit with you and contemplate. And, um, and I, I hope, yeah, I just want to bless you and your life and the book and all the things that are going on. You, you're, uh, you're doing great work. Thank you, Jonathan. I love that picture. I'm going to hold on to that. I do yeah. Too. When I think about this conversation, I'm going to think about sitting in lawn chairs, sitting looking lawn, at the moon, looking at the moon. That's right. Yeah, That's right. I like that. All right. Well, so now I'm going to hit stop recording, but after okay. I hit stop, I will say goodbye to you because sometimes okay. I forget to do this and I just hang up on people. <laughs> and we're done. <laughs> yeah. So for the podcast, now we got to put on the show, not the show. We say goodbye. All right. See you. Yes. Heather. Thank you. Bye. Goodbye. All right, that was fun being with Heather. I hope you'll pick up her book, Returning to Eden, The Field Guide for the Spiritual Journey. And uh, go ahead and just share the episode with someone. Why not? Thanks, everyone. Have a great week. We'll see you back here next time. Peace.